Welcome back to Stemfatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm <laughs> losing it. And also <laughs> Dr. Emily Gremlin. I'm, uh, I mean, I'm also losing <laughs> it. I was going to try to say something else, but. You know, why deny what is so uh, true? <laughs> I'm clearly also losing it, and <laughs> uh, I'm also, also Dr. Emma Dilemma. And we're your co-hosts, and we're here, and we're ready to tell you things about women in science from the past. <laughs> yeah, we are. All right. Yeah. Emma. <laughs> As usual, jumping in head first. Head first. Let's you not know. even pretend we've got chit-chat No going. messing around. No <laughs> messing around. Okay, today I'm going to tell you about the famous activist who founded the Greenbelt Movement in 1977, Ooh. Um, resulting in the planting of over 50 million trees throughout Kenya and billions of trees throughout the world. I love it. And her name, yeah, her name is Wangari Muta Matai. I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited. I just realized... We used to start with trivia, like a question, and I totally just stopped doing that. <laughs> I just, we, we, did we ever get, you right, when did we stop doing that? I don't know. I just realized when I was telling you, I was like, don't we usually, like, make each other guess or like. <laughs> <laughs> Not for a while. <sighs> uh. Well. Maybe next time I'll 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 come in with a question hot. Yeah. But maybe not. Maybe okay. I'll forget as well. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like No, see I don't know even know what I would ask you about this. Yeah, especially except after you maybe, gave me all the answers. Like, <laughs> I know. Except <laughs> yeah, I could have asked you like, do you know what the green belt movement is? But I just told you. So it's like <laughs> That's it. End of pod. Told Though you I could, t- if you ask me that question now, I could probably right, tell whatever. you. Whatever. So Next I would time we'll have a question. Yeah. Seem pretty smart. You'd make me look pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna um, embarrass you. Okay. Okay, that's fair. All right. So let's go. Okay, let's get on it. Yeah. <laughs> Wangari Muta was born on April first, nineteen forty. In the Tetu division of Nyeri, Kenya. All which right. At the time, Kenya was a British colony uh-huh. in 1940. Her her family was Kukuyu, which is the largest of the over 40 ethnic groups in Kenya. Sorry, not over the age of 40. The largest of the more than 40 ethnic groups in kenya i just realized the way i phrased it made it sound like oh okay yeah i thought it was all people over the age of 40 no (laughs) there's 
a lot. There are more than 40 different ethnic groups gotcha. in Kenya. Gotcha. And the Kikuyu group is the largest. I think it's at this point something like 17, 17% of the population. Gotcha. Okay. Which isn't, you know, a lot, but it's still the largest. Yeah. Um, and her family had lived in the village of Ahithe for multiple generations. So she was the third of six children. And in her memoir, Unbowed, which a lot of this story comes from, um, she says that her mother delivered her at home with the help of local women in a mud-walled house with no electricity or water. Which sometimes I hear stories like that and I'm just like... How do women do it, you know? Sounds so scary. That sounds so, yeah. Um, Her parents were farmers, and she describes the environment growing up as being very lush, and the seasons were regular, the water was clean, and there were many native trees. Um, And growing up in this kind of idyllic, natural place would forever inspire her in her later environmental work. I'm sure. Yeah. However, much of the land around her village was owned by white settlers, while native Kenyans were mostly restricted to designated reserves like their village of Ahithe. Uh-huh. And in addition, around the time she was born, white Christian missionaries um, had also settled in the region and were competing for converts. So different, like, Christian sects, like Catholicism and Protestant Christianity. You know, they're all competing to convert African, like, the Kenyans yeah. to Christianity. Such a weird and creepy... Yeah. <laughs> I, sh- I we, you know, we, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna get into it. I just missionary yeah. is strange. That's strange. Missionaries, um, not those. Mi- never mind. Missionaries. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just keep going. Uh, so, and those who did convert were often given more privileges or power. And so, in general, the culture was shifting to look more European mm-hmm. as more um, people converted. And so, this includes not only things like food and drinks, um, but the currency had changed and changed during her childhood from, like, goats and livestock, like trading those for food or some, or for materials, Um to cash, like a cash-based economy. I would much prefer a goat-based economy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, there's so much, um, like, f- overgrown stuff in my backyard that, like, one goat would really be pretty awesome right about now. Right. And the issue with the cash-based economy is that I think this was... I don't know if if there is currently a Kenyan currency, but I'm imagining it's the British currency Mm -hmm. was now becoming what was valuable, right? Yeah. And so this new cash-based society required her father to find work outside of her village Mm -hmm. um, just in order to buy food or anything that the family would need, right? Yeah. So you couldn't just trade with what you had – to like sustain right. yourself. Yeah. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah. 
And so he went to work on a white-owned farm, bringing along some of his family for a time. But when Wangari was seven years old, she and her mother moved back to Nairi to take care of her brothers, her older brothers, mm-hmm. who had stayed behind in Nairi to attend school. They couldn't attend school on the white guy's farm because there were no schools for Kenyans in those now like white regions of Kenya, basically. Just for um, white people, I would imagine. Yeah. Great, great. I don't even know if there were there I think there were I don't know. Yeah, it was that that was a little confusing to me, but it yeah, I think there were schools, but just not for only for like the British yeah. Uh, colonists. So in Nairi, um, Wangari's mother cared for her own farm, on which she eventually gave Wangari a small section to garden in herself. Aww. So just again, like she w- was really close to the land and like um, just learned a lot about farming and growing and uh, living sustainably pretty early in life. And let's see, around this time, Wangari also remembers, she's about eight years old, that the British government began establishing non-native trees in large commercial plantations, mm-hmm. which they would often find space for by burning native forests. Which is God, like, we're so awful. I know. Yeah, that's the colonist way. Um, and when Gari also began attending school at this age, and then at age 11, she began attending a Catholic school specifically, where she learned English and eventually was converted to Catholicism. Um, around age 16, she gained admission to the only Catholic high school for girls in Kenya, the Loretto High School in Lumuru, which was, was away from her family slash and her village, yeah. Um, but she got a really good education there. Nice. And it was during these years that she was in high school, and even when she went to college, that Kenyans began revolting against the British colonies. I mean, I'm sure, I would guess there were small uh, rebellions here and there, but this was like a pretty big revolution against the British colonies. Um, and, but Wangari herself was pretty sheltered from the violence and politics of these battles, partially because she was a kid, yeah. I think, and maybe just didn't under- totally understand. Um, in 1958, so she's 18, a young politician named Tom Mboya sought support f- from people like Martin Luther King Jr. and then-Senator John F. Kennedy Jr. for the establishment of Western educational systems in Kenya. So he was a pretty revolutionary, like, young guy, and he was just like, we need, you know, a better educational system kind of, like, by Kenyans for Kenyans and wanted help from the U.S. to establish that. Um... In response, JFK set up something called the Kennedy Airlift Program, which would select top students from Kenya and bring them to the U.S. to receive higher education. Oh, Which to me is like, I, I think that's good, 
But it's also like, you could also fund schools in Kenya. Yeah. I don't know, but it's still something, I guess. <laughs> um, it's always just weird to me to like take people out of their country, you know, like take the best from their country. Yes. Yeah. It's a, like, that's weird. Yeah. Instead of investing in the um, country. Right. Itself. So, with that, though, uh, Wangari became one of 300 Kenyan students selected to study in the U.S. in 1960. And so, she moved to Atchison, Kansas, to study biology at the Mount St. Scholastica College, which is now known as Benedictine College. That's got to be such a um, stark contrast. Yeah, like moving from the foothills of Kenya to like Kansas. <laughs> I don't know. That's really weird. Not as beautiful. Um, <laughs> no offense, Kansas. No offense to Kansas. <laughs> um, after receiving her bachelor's degree, she went on to the University of Pittsburgh to get a master's degree in biology and it's while she was there that she learned, started learning about environmental restoration and activism after she met a group of environmentalists that were fighting for better air quality in the city. Nice. Um, after receiving her master's degree, she moved back to Kenya to work as a research assistant for a professor of zoology at the University College of Nairobi. Um, however, when she arrived back in Kenya, she found out that she no longer had the position. She doesn't really know why, but she thinks it's because she was a woman and maybe they didn't know. Um, and because they found out she was Kukuyu and there were a lot of like different ethnic tensions mm. at that time. But she eventually found a different job working as a research assistant for a German professor at the veterinary school um, at the same college. Okay. And so, and to make ends meet, she also ran a general store in the city with her sisters. A gem like, store? General. Oh, a like, general. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was fine store, gems. Yeah. Gems. <laughs> <laughs> that would be truly... Like next level, yeah. <laughs> just like a extremely fancy like gem just store do that. as like a side yeah, business. Why wouldn't you just do that? Yeah. <laughs> so let's see. A couple years into this position, at the encouragement of her professor, she began pursuing a PhD in veterinary medicine. Nice. Where she spent a few years researching veterinary anatomy at colleges in Ger- Germany before returning to Kenya to finish her PhD at the University College of Nairobi. And I couldn't find her dissertation or, like, papers from this time, Mm -hmm. but I did read that her PhD was in the development and differentiation of gonads in bovines. So I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, some bull testes. Yeah, exactly. Love it. (laughs) And, um... Upon receiving her PhD in 1971, she became the first woman in East or Central Africa to get a PhD. That's awesome. We haven't talked about any yeah. people who have gotten like veterinary 
science Yeah, degrees. which is weird. But maybe it's just because, I mean, I guess you just don't hear about, I don't hear about animal scientists a lot, like famous yeah. animal scientists, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know, though. I mean, that's kind of it for her animal science, but... <laughs> hey, yeah, that's <laughs> no, enough. She spends quite a bit of time as a professor, but I don't know how much more research she did. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so during this time where she's in getting her PhD, basically since she returned to Kenya, like, six years earlier, she had been seeing a man, Mwangi Matai. And upon her return from Germany to Nairobi, they married, and she soon after became pregnant with their son, Waweru. Love it. And a couple years later, around the time she received her PhD, she had their daughter, Wanjira. And a couple years after that, she had her second son, Muta. Um, By the way, her life is insane. (laughs) So if I'm going really fast, it's just like a lot happens. And I'm just trying to like get it all all in there. I get you. I'm so impressed by people who can like raise kids and get their degrees. It just seems like so much work. So it's crazy. Impressive. It is. Um... For a few years after receiving her PhD, she stayed on at the university as a lecturer in veterinary anatomy, and she was quickly promoted to associate professor and became chair of the Department of Veterinary Anatomy in 1976, which are all firsts for um, for women in Africa. Love it. Which is, yeah. And then... Throughout this whole time, too, she became very involved in Kenyan politics, Mm -hmm. which would quickly become a primary focus of her career. So, let's see. Yeah, upon her return to Kenya in 1969, Wangari became an active member of a number of organizations, including the National Council of Women, the Kenya Red Cross Society, the Kenya Association of University Women, and the Environment Liaison Center. Like, she's just always doing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, British colonial rule in Kenya had officially come to an end in 1963 while she was studying in the U.S. And, however, the British impact in the region was still apparent. Yeah, I'm sure. And for Wangari, the environmental degradation caused by British colonialism seemed to be the root cause for many issues in Kenya, especially in, like, poor communities. Mm -hmm. Um, When she spoke to rural Kenyan women, they would report that their streams were drying up, food was scarce, and that they would have to travel long distances to find firewood for fuel or fencing. And so all of these issues were caused by the deforestation and planting of non-native trees many years previous, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. And so when her husband successfully won a seat in Parliament in 1974, she started a business called EnviroCare Limited that would hire unemployed people to plant native Kenyan trees. That's awesome. Um, I love a a business owner. And yeah, what a powerhouse. What powerhouse couple. Like, she's like... 
at working as a professor <laughs> and just starts a business. Like, who does that? You know. While the business itself didn't last, her ha- her aim to use tree planting as a way to employ and empower Kenyans, especially Kenyan women, caught on with worldwide environmental agencies and especially in her local women's councils. Nice. And so in 1977, she led a march which with the National Council of Women in Kenya, which ended with the first, quote, green belt, or the planting of seven trees in honor of historical community leaders. And this planting was the official start of the green belt movement, nice. which aimed to use tree plantings for multiple things, um, to stop erosion, for use as fuel, for beautification, and for a source of income for the women who plant them. Um, okay. That same year, 1978, she officially, that, that was the year she officially began the Green Belt Movement. She and her husband separated. And in 1979, her husband filed for divorce, citing that she was, quote, cruel, quote, too strong-minded for a woman. Oh, God. And that he was, quote, unable to control her. Um, there's so, okay, so I, I'm gonna, I take back the powerhouse couple thing. Uh, I know, right? At first, it seems great. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, he's chill, like, he's anyway. happy for her to go to Germany and then come back, and, like, he's doing his thing, right. and she's Get starting her business, but, um, yeah, yeah don't you, uh, women are not for you to control, so... Um, he also claimed that she had an affair with another member of parliament, though Wangari says this is a lie. <laughs> Still, the judge ruled in her ex-husband's favor, mm. whereafter Wangari called the judge, quote, incompetent, and then she was charged with contempt of court and sentenced to six months in jail. Oh, God! Just for calling him incompetent. Um, this is so taking a turn. Somewhat... Yeah, somewhat fortunately, she was released from jail after only three days um, after she drafted an apology letter to the judge with her lawyer. That's good. <laughs> like, oh, God. Her life is extremely dramatic, mm-hmm. and mostly because uh, she was an outspoken woman, yeah. and people did not want to deal with her. No, I don't like that. Just, anyway. So now... Because she was divorced and the university did not pay enough for her to support herself and her family, she took another job working for a United United Nations economic program, which required her to travel often throughout Africa. And since she would have to travel so often, her children moved in with their father full time, Mm. Um, though she would still visit them when she was back in Kenya. How could she also be? Did she, she was she no longer a professor then? Like, if she's traveling all around, she was. Yeah, it's a little confusing to me, like how much time she was traveling. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> and what her teaching schedule was, or her, I don't even totally know what her university like responsibilities were. Gotcha. Right. So, um, she also began campaigning for different political positions. Like, how does she have time? That's what I, whenever, in reading all of this, I'm like, how did you have time to do any of this? <laughs> yeah. When do you sleep? Um, do you sleep? 
Yeah. So first, she campaigned to be chairperson of the National Council of Women of Kenya. And then she campaigned for a parliamentary seat in Nyeri. And for both positions, she experienced a lot of backlash from the government, which was run by a newly elected president, Daniel Art Moe, who he generally opposed the idea of giving positions of power to anyone of Kikuyu ethnicity. Mm. And he did, he did not like Wangari, which we'll get into. Okay. She eventually won the position for the National Council of Women, but her campaign for the parliamentary seat caused her many issues. She had to um, resign from her chair at the university to run for office. But then the courts made up a bunch of stuff about her not registering in time or correctly to just which disqualified her from running, which she said they all they fabricated completely. And so because she lost her chair at the university, she also lost her housing and had to find basically a new job and a new home and everything. Oh, God. Yeah, and she didn't win the parliamentary seat, which is why, yeah, that was really pretty bad. Um, And this debacle was really just the beginning of her battle against Daniel Moey, who is a pretty controversial figure. So just for a little context... Because I didn't know all this about Kenyan history. Um, he became Kenya's second president in 1978, and he was opposed to a multi-party democracy, outlawing and repressing the uprising of any other political parties until 1992, when the international community forced him to allow other parties to put up candidates for president. Okay. Um, so at which point he'd been president for uh like 22 years, 24 years, gotcha. right? Wait, no, no. 78 to 92. 14 years. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, many thought he was a stabilizing force in his early years as president, but he is actually really corrupt and despotic from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Uh, torturing opponents in chambers in a governmental building in Nairobi, which wasn't uh, really discovered until later. Um, But even after he was forced to allow a multi-party system in 1992, he won re-election for two more terms because he was very good at inciting violence between ethnic groups so that the opposition parties... What had a really difficult time uniting against him. Gotcha. So he was president until 2002. So from 1978 to 2002. It's too long. Um, yeah. And basically he was president for most of Wangari's adult gotcha. life. And they were pretty much constant opponents <laughs> from, from this point on. Um, okay. So it's been a tumultuous 10 years <laughs> just to get back to her life. Yeah. She gets a PhD. She has kids. She starts the Green Belt movement. She gets divorced. She runs for parliament. She loses and she kind of loses her, her financial stability and her like main job and everything. But good thing she still has a gem, gem business. <laughs> just kidding. The really lucrative yeah. gem, gem role business. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but she decided that it was, you know, now time for her to really grow the green belt movement even more. So through her many travels and involvement with women's and environmental groups, she had forged connections with a lot of different people, including the director of the Norwegian Forestry Society and the United Nations Voluntary Fund for Women. So she received funding and, and assistance from these big organizations so that she could purchase seeds, establish nurseries for growing tree seedlings, hire permanent employees, and um, directly pay women who were planting the seeds and seedlings for the movement. Nice. Yeah, and um, and so as the movement grew, so did the involvement and funding from even more environmental and women's programs. And it was pretty successful, so she eventually established hundreds of tree nurseries throughout Kenya and planted millions of trees in the first 10 years of the program, all using uh, paying like women to help her plant the trees and then those women would take whatever when they like sold the trees or any, I don't know, whenever they used the trees for like lumber, etc. all the money went back to the women, gotcha. like basically giving them trees and forests to grow. Nice. Let's see. And the success attra- attracted interest from other environmentalists in Africa. And so in 1986, Wangari established the Pan-African Greenbelt Network, which had over 45 representatives from over 15 different African countries. That's, um, that seems huge. Yeah. And so these representatives would come visit her or work with her to learn about her grassroots program in Kenya and then would return to their home countries to develop similar programs generally just fighting against desertification, deforestation, hunger, and water crises, um, all using this, this grassroots model that she developed in Kenya. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. Like, planting um, trees does solve, so, like, planting native trees can solve so many problems right. that we've caused by, like, mm-hmm. cutting them down. <laughs> trees and so she was becoming very internationally famous um you know even beyond africa like the in the united states in europe in asia in um yeah in russia however the kenyan government was still incredibly against her and this is because the green belt movement was very pro-democracy yeah so she not only had this movement to plant trees and restore the Kenyan environment, but she would help register people to vote and she campaigned strongly for free speech and constitutional reform. Terrible so things. She believed, you know, deep down, like, and this is true, that the disempowerment and disenfranchisement of rural communities were a root cause of their problems. Mm-hmm. And so the Green Belt movement began holding seminars in civic and environmental education, 
to teach communities how to take back their power and mobilize to address their own needs instead of relying on the government to meet their needs. Yeah. Um, so she, pr- she made herself an enemy of the government and especially the president who didn't like that she was this like strong willed woman that he couldn't control. Same. Yeah. Just like her husband. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And yeah, let's see. Unfortunately, because of these pro-democracy teachings, efforts, and protests, she is eventually asked to retire from her chair on the National Women's Council as they no longer wanted to be associated with the Greenbelt movement. Um, the president was like cutting off funding to things she was associated gotcha. with at this time. So then, you know, she, of course, turned even more attention to the Greenbelt movement and the fight for democracy in Kenya. Um, a couple years later, for instance, when the government was going to allow a giant sk- skyscraper to be built in an urban park in Nairobi, she began writing letters of prost- protest to government offices, shareholders in the project, and um, just people around the world, even the president, Daniel Moe, who still hated her, <laughs> would go on to publicly state that she was, quote, a crazy woman, quote, ignorant. And um, and he said more generally that anyone against this skyscraper had, quote, insects in their heads, in their head. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Insects in your head. Yeah. So he, I mean, he, like, was publicly against her. It wasn't just this private battle. Yeah. Like, they were pretty much known enemies. Um, but still, she was gaining a lot of public attention. And the construction of this huge skyscraper complex became ever more unpopular. To throw her off, or an attempt to throw her off, the president began auditing the Greenbelt Movement, and kicked them out of government offices, so she moved headquarters to her home. However, the media attention had become so negative that foreign investors in the complex canceled the project. Um, so her campaign ended up being extremely successful, nice. even though Daniel Moe attempted this like personal attack on her, essentially. It can backfire when you personally attack somebody who's pro-democracy um, and people's right. livelihoods especially <laughs> in the 80s yeah. which is when the cold war was pretty like intense mm-hmm. um <laughs> i don't know <laughs> no it seems right uh, and there was and you know the news was like being broadcast very widely mm-hmm. you know people knew of what was happening in all these different countries yeah um So in the next few years, she essentially continues her battle for democracy and against Daniel Moe, who would continually target her as she had become a chairperson of a main opposition party in 1992. So, yeah, in 1992, international pressures on Moe um, caught, like, made him allow for other parties to run in the presidential election. But... He was, but nobody won because there was just so much fighting between the different opposition parties that, yeah, I think I said earlier, he was still president for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Anyway, but she had become part of the opposition parties. Gotcha. And, okay, for some time, Wangari would travel to regions, including high-conflict regions, to try to convince disparate parties to plant trees of peace. But this ended when the president started a propaganda campaign against her, saying that <sighs> she had been telling Kukuyus, her ethnic group, to attack members of his ethnic group, the Kalinchins. And so after a friend of hers was kidnapped, she briefly went into hiding. Jesus. Um, wow, two weeks in a row of kidnapping. It, yeah. Or two episodes in a row. It's, it's like... Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't like a powerful woman kidnapper. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, so, meanwhile, internationally, she's receiving awards <laughs> and, like, being invited to conferences for her work um, on sustainable development and the Greenbelt movement and the democracy and everything. And so... When she tells Mikhail Gorbachev, leader of the Soviet Union, that she cannot attend this giant conference in Tokyo because she doesn't think the president will let her and she's in hiding, he contacts Daniel Moe and is like, um, you should let her travel. What's going on? And then Daniel Moe was all like, oh, she, she it's fine. She can travel. Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> like. So she became such, like, an internationally so, renowned person that then... Yeah. He had to start he kind had of... had to, like, stop. Yeah. Yeah, he had to be more secretive about his attacks uh -huh. on her. He couldn't just, like, murder her or something, which I'm sure he wanted to. <laughs> so eventually she feels free to travel again and goes abroad, receives some awards like the Edinburgh Medal and the Jane Addams International Women's Leadership Award. Um, you know, but their battles don't end. In 1998, she learned of a government plan to privatize large areas of the Karura Forest outside of Nairobi, which usually means someone's going to use the forest to, like, collect uh, lumber, mm -hmm. you know, timber, lumber, I don't know yeah. <laughs> the right words for this. Yeah. Um, or, like, other resources, right? So, in response, she protested again through letter campaigns and by taking the Greenbelt movement to the forest to plant trees. And on one particular day, her and a group of six protesters were actually attacked and she was knocked unconscious when she showed up to the forest and attempted to plant a tree in, right in front of a group of guards um, sent by the government. Uh-huh. So, this attack was filmed by someone who was there, and when the world saw it, it sparked, you know, a ton of outrage, like, how dare they attack this environmentalist for planting a tree, yeah. you know? And it also sparked public student protests in Kenya, which were then violently broken up by police, um... However, in August 1999, the president finally announced that he was not going to go forward with the plan to privatize the forest. Awesome. So she, like, beat him again. Frick um, yeah. Yeah. In 2001, this all kind of happened again. He was going to privatize it. Wangari protested. She was arrested. 
I don't know why at this point he even tries to stop her because everyone in the world loves her. <laughs> and like, yeah, it doesn't look good for mad him. At him. Yeah. So she was released, I think, the same day um, once everyone found out. <clears throat> in 2002, Daniel Moey was not allowed to run for president again. At some point, there had been constitutional reform mm-hmm. that said he could only run for two terms. Now, <laughs> two, uh, that in started in 1992. Yeah, okay. yeah. In addition to the 15 years he was president, then he was only allowed to run for Only two, two more, Moe. <laughs> and so she decided to run for parliament in the National Rainbow Coalition, which was Finally, an organization that united in opposition to Moe. Nice. And she won a seat in parliament, her seat in parliament. Yeah. And the presidential candidate of the National Rainbow Coalition beat the guy who run in Daniel Moe's party. So there was finally kind of this regime change or party yeah. change, you know, in the country. Gotcha. Um. And the new ruling party with the new president, Mawai Kabaki, appointed Wangari as the assistant minister in the Ministry for Environment and Natural Resources. Yes. Those are good people to put in charge of resources. Yeah. She's finally kind of being recognized in her mm-hmm. own country by the government, you know, That's awesome. for her work. In 2004, Wangari was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her, quote, contribution to sustainable development, democracy, and peace. Um, it's a big deal. And this, yeah, and this <laughs> made her the first African woman to win a Nobel Prize. That's awesome. That's crazy. 2004, that's only 16 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, but it is awesome. And um, after this, her life was just essentially filled with honors and awards. So <laughs> I'll just like highlight a few. Um, in March 2005, Wangari was elected the first president of the African Union's Economic, Social, and Cultural Council. In 2006, she began the United Nations Billion Tree Campaign. Nice. Um, she received the Legion of Honor in France, and she planted a tree with Barack Obama in Nairobi. Nice. Um, because, so his father, actually, Barack Obama's father, was also part of the Kennedy Air Flight Program, with the one that brought her to the mm, U.S. Gotcha. to get schooling. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 2007... The billion tree campaign planted their billionth tree, which is like, you could plant a billion trees in one year? That's crazy. I mean, like the, yeah, yeah. the billion tree campaign started in 2006, and in 2007, they planted their billionth tree. It's a lot of trees. That's a lot of trees. <laughs> And then, then it shifted to become the trillion tree <laughs> campaign. Always which be it's not there. Always yet. be striving. <laughs> yeah. Um in that same year she became the co chair of the Congo Basin Fund, which was an initiative 
by the British and Norwegian governments to help protect the Congo forests, which are like similar to the Amazon forests in terms of like environmental services gotcha. um, that they provide for the earth. Uh, the UN also named her a UN messenger of peace in December 2009. And in 2010, she founded the Wangari Matai Institute for Peace and Environmental Studies at the University of Nairobi. Um, in total, she was given 15 honorary doctorate degrees and, you know, countless awards. And, she died on the 25th of September 2011 of ovarian cancer while receiving treatment at a Nairobi hospital. What a life. And yeah, pretty crazy. I I know I sped through it, but there was just so much that was like yeah, hard to yeah. Like the Nobel Peace Prize doesn't even seem like that big of a thing. <laughs> but it was. It's, like, huge. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's got to be. That's – no, I think I think stories like that are amazing when, like, she very easily could have kind of given up at multiple different points when, you know, she lost right. her – or she didn't get her seat in parliament and also lost her job um, when the president right. was literally after her. Uh, yeah, all the times she was in jail. Like, she even went to jail another time I didn't even mention during a protest. She was, like, tear gassed once protesting to get political prisoners released. It was all, like, it's all crazy. Her life is crazy. She seems amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, and then all in the end, like, she got so much recognition and did so much good stuff. It's nice yeah, to see that you gotten, can like, yeah, have great success after so many obstacles and and defeats. Yeah, I need optimism yeah, right now. I mean, yeah, and she's there's a bunch of books by her and about her, and I think there's like some movies. Nice. And, so I think she was like pretty. It's just so funny because I think she was, like, pretty well-known at the time as, like, you know, this lady who's gotten millions of trees planted throughout Africa and then the world. But yet her life was filled with all this this constant fight yeah. just to, like, do that. Um, so, and just men being like, stop Stop being so strong-minded. Why can't I control I can't you? Control you this way, <laughs> which is a lot. Uh, yeah, I yeah. love when men try to control me. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that was awesome and super cool. I love all of it. I love the political intrigue. I love the trees. I yeah. love. Uh, goat exchange. I loved it all. Yeah. No, that was great. Uh, once again, every, every time we do this podcast, I drink, I get up too early and I drink too much coffee and I eat no food and I'm just like, by the end of it, I'm shook. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm like losing my voice. <laughs> well, luckily, it's time for me to talk. Work, 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 work. All right, this is the women who work section where we give shout outs to badass ladies making herstory today and yesterday and recently. Today. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. And recently. <laughs> so uh, my shout out this week goes to Dr. Alice Roberts for winning the Royal Society David Attenborough Award and Lecture 2020. Whoa. So um, this award was given to Dr. Alice Roberts for outstanding contributions to public engagement, ranging from medicine, anatomy, biology, evolution, and archaeology, through lectures, television, wow. books, and other media, as well as her advocacy through her role as professor of public engagement at the University of Birmingham and as the president of the British Science Association. So she's been oh gosh. all over the BBC yeah. So, yeah, so she got her um, PhD, and she's a professor, but she's also, like, a renowned British television host, essentially, doing a lot of, oh, like, science okay. shows. Um, so, like, kind of similar to David Attenborough. Um, she's all over yeah. all over the BBC, doing a lot of cool um, science outreach, things like that. So... Some of these BBC shows she's been on include um, an anatomy uh, and health series called, quote, Dr. Alice Roberts, Don't Die Young. Um, a documentary called, quote, A Necessary Evil about the Burke and Hare murders who sold bodies of their murder victims to be dissected in anatomy lectures back when we, uh, when we needed bodies to learn about uh, anatomy. Oh my gosh. Uh, as well as uh, a lot That's of other shows like Woolly Mammoth, Secrets from the Ice, Prehistoric Autopsy, and Britain's Pompeii, A Village Lost in Time. She's also written eight books wow. and numerous scientific articles. How are some people just so productive? I don't know. <sighs> Do you think they're always working? You know what? I think they, I think they're just don't waste as much time with with shenanigans you know there's some people who i think, I think they just play animal crossing i think they probably do i think some people are just very produ <laughs> productive in like like you know for the hour they work they actually are like very productive right um <clears throat> yeah unlike me who Man, that's crazy every 15 minutes of working watches another video on how to grow strawberries like that's not a productive right, use of right, my time. Right. Um, yeah, I think some people <laughs> well, why just not. I mean, maybe it is if I become a strawberry farmer. Yeah, yeah. You never know. Everybody sold out of strawberries, so I can't even do that. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to. Oh, of strawberry plants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Anyway, so shout <laughs> This is not about me. It's too late. It's too it's late. Too late. <laughs> uh, my shout out goes to Dr. Alice Roberts. Um, Yay! That's awesome. Yeah, we need more. I'm watch some of those. We, we like definitely need more women being depicted as scientists on television. Like, there's so much. I think the BBC is oh, for sure better than a lot of American television for sure. But yeah. uh, and like, there's so many American television shows that are about scientists. Like, especially. 
um, for like Shark Week and various things like that. That and there's like various like outdoorsy science like biology shows or like um uh, like mammal wildlife shows and they're all just right. like men who look like dundee with their like hats yep. and it's like that's not actually a good representation of the diversity of people who study these things it's not just right like large men <laughs> large men <sighs> anyways so <laughs> i don't know if- Crocodile Dundee is large. I don't know. I just mean, like, I'm trying not to be rude. Like, men with large necks. (laughs) (laughs) And and hats. Yeah, it's just, there's, there's no, like, the outdoorsy guy is not the only person outdoors. Yes. You know what I mean? Exactly. That's what Black Birders Week taught us. Yeah, for sure. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, so but that is it's frustrating that it's it's often depicted mm-hmm. that way. So yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Am I um, saying it well? No. I'm just, you know, I'm just feeling bad for the large necked guys. You know, now. the large <laughs> the large necked guys are doing just fine for themselves. I know. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. Oh, so funny. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to our episode. If you like this podcast or like the women that we talk about, please rate um, mm-hmm. rate our podcast on iTunes. It really helps people find the podcast and kind of figure out what it's about or, you know, tweet about us or something like that. Sh- show your love for the podcast. We are at home all the time and we'd love to see some love yeah we are at home all the time um <laughs> uh, and then uh as always thank you to caitlin friesen for our awesome art and to artichoke for our theme music and you can go stimulate yourself it's gotten real weird <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.